Well, amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning. Um, if you are here today and you have a child here today and they want to go with Miss Rhonda, then they are free to do that at this time and you can pick up your child after the service downstairs uh, with Miss Rhonda. You can see that we are gearing up for Vacation Bible School behind us. We worked really hard this week. Powers and Justin and Brandon and myself, we made crayon boxes. And uh, that took us a lot longer than it appears to have taken. It took us a really long time. And, and um, we got the contact information for a girl uh, in Dora. Her name is Abby Marsh. And Abby is an artist. And so she drew what you see behind me and painted that. It took her 22 hours, and, uh, and she is just an absolute artist. And so I want to thank Abby uh, for, for drawing our backdrop for Vacation Bible School. We're gearing up for it uh, June the 6th through the 9th. That is a Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 12 uh, o'clock midday. And we always have such a great time in Vacation Bible School. It is a wonderful, wonderful ministry uh, that God has used over the years in all sorts of churches to, uh, to teach Jesus. Some of the kids will only hear about Jesus in Vacation Bible School because a neighbor brings them or a grandmother brings them or a friend brings them. And so uh, we are gearing up for VBS. We hope that you will bring your children. Uh, the, the, the age group starts uh, for four-year-olds, and I always mess this up. Help me out, Aaron. Four-year-olds is, is a one, someone that has just completed four-year-old kindergarten, four-year-old preschool, right? That's where we start at, and we will go through fifth grade. And so having said that, uh, we look forward to Vacation Bible School. Turn in your Bible to John chapter number 15. If you're a guest here today, we are really glad that you're here um, we are glad that you have chosen to come and worship the Lord here. We pray that you are treated like family, and, uh, and we pray that, that you have worshiped the Lord uh, in the conversations around, and, uh, and also as we have sung already, and that you will worship, will worship the Lord through the Word today. John chapter number 15, I want to read uh, the scripture here, verses 1 and 2. We are in the book of John on Wednesday nights. And so if you are a Wednesday nighter, this is a little bit of a repeat sermon from this past Wednesday. But hang in here with me. John chapter number 15, we will not have that on the screen this morning. Hopefully there's a pew Bible in front of you that you can turn there. John chapter number 15, look at verses 1 and 2 with me, if you will. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And he's had this wonderful meal with his disciples and in some of the longest teaching that we have from Jesus, Jesus has taught on the Holy Spirit in John 14. He's also taught on the relationship that he has with his Father in that text. It's a wonderful Trinitarian passage there in John 14. And then in John 15, he gives an illustration, a metaphor, that I want us to discuss here in a moment. Let me read John 15 verses 1 and 2, and then I would also like to read a statement this morning. So, having said that, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, the vine dresser. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, 
so that it will be even more fruitful. Father God, would you bless the teaching of your word today through the power of your spirit. We need you today in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'd like to respond to the Southern Baptist Convention and the Guidepost Report that came out earlier this week concerning the abuse of women and children. Uh, I felt like that me not saying anything today is uh, and being silent while we are a Southern Baptist church uh, would not have been appropriate. The report was done by an independent group voted on by the messengers of over 45,000 churches sent to Birmingham for the 2019 SBC convention. There has been horrific tragedy done in churches all over denominations. We can't speak to those denominations this morning, but we speak toward our own. The SBC messengers desired at that time transparency and honesty. Covered sin cannot be dealt with. Not only in a church, but even in our own lives. Covered sin cannot be dealt with. Within this public report, there was a list that was kept internally. My understanding, uh, from my understanding, it was kept by one man privately. Of any abuse case that made the news dealing with a Baptist pastor going back to even decades. The report has been sensationalized by some news media outlets as a cover-up which is somewhat misleading, for Baptist churches are autonomous, meaning there is no hierarchy within our denomination as compared to other denominations. Union Hill governs Union Hill. Many of those churches handled those abuse situations biblically and right, holding those pastors who were guilty of sin accountable within their church and to the law while standing with those whose lives are forever changed by sinful pastors. Several individuals have been named in the report, which their actions is greatly disappointing and deeply saddening to many here. However, nothing is shocking to us, to me, dealing with people anymore. People trust their pastors, and when that trust is broken, lives are wounded forever. Apart from the grace of the Lord. But scars remain. You can be healed, but scars remain. The SBC voted for this investigation within the leadership for the purpose of transparency, truth, and ultimately redemption of the body of Christ. I've seen much ridicule of the Southern Baptist Convention over the last week from many, and that saddens me because I am one. But that ridicule is a part of the fallout of sin. I also know that there are thousands and thousands of churches doing wonderful things and led by humble, godly leaders all over the world, Baptist churches, all denominations, but since we're talking about Baptist, There are men the world will never hear who faithfully serve their family, their church families for the majority of their lives, who teach God's word, disciple those under their care, who handle conflict in truth and in love, their names will never be in an earthly spotlight. Maybe that's, that's one silent issue among all of this that's deeply embedded into our culture and into the Americanized Christianity, the celebrity pastor, by the way. Men who desire the power and the people crave following a celebrity. Life has taught and is teaching us, is teaching me to be very careful of celebrity pastors. 
Let us remember that the Bible only names a handful of people whom Jesus poured into. So discipleship and the health of a church are more important than numerical growth. Let me say that again. Discipleship and the health of a church are more important than numerical growth. Let that sink in a little bit. I know there's a lot of confusion surrounding a lot of things. And for now, I think we need to be slow to speak. I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to reiterate some things or to iterate some things and to ask for prayers over our staff, our church, and community. Our church has stood for and is standing for widows and orphans, according to 1 Timothy 5 and James 1, the defenseless, the ones who need help, the ones who have been deeply wounded. We have stood with. You have sent countless families with messy situations into long-term counseling, You have paid for that, church family, and we have seen many families receive the help necessary to walk through life together. We have stood with women and children throughout the years who have been sinfully taken advantage of. Many scenarios come to my mind that I could use for illustrations this morning. Let me use one. 16 years ago, I'm reminded of three children who who this church rescued and adopted through a van ministry here at Union Hill. The Lord used you to pull these children from terrible circumstances to offer them an opportunity to live and thrive. We want to walk with those who need help because they have no one. James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless, the widow, and their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Jesus loved children. They love the widow. And pastors and churches must be intentional in the protection of the defenseless. Number two, I want to reiterate our desire among our church staff to be held accountable to what we teach and preach. We want to practice what we preach. When a pastor who teaches that the Lord is holy and calls God's people to holiness and to repentance, when he teaches the inerrancy of Scripture and the supremacy of Christ within those Scriptures, When that man sins sexually or he lies or he is filled with pride, the kingdom of God is hurt. That pastor becomes a hypocrite in the eyes of many, and hypocrisy can be a stumbling block for individuals to lose their faith. The temptation for that man or that church is to hide and cover the sin. The critical spirit is given more opportunity for the ridicule of the kingdom. And those who are barely hanging on to their faith are given another opportunity by the devil's schemes to turn their back on the church and possibly the Lord. I know that I'm using broad brushstrokes this morning. And individual cases certainly can be um, not characterized by some of this. There are so many scenarios, particularly on the critical spirit. Those who want to be offended, we're not going to do anything to not offend them. However, the church, not just our denomination, has given much ammo to the world for criticism. Some would say then, don't preach holiness. Don't teach and preach against sin. If we cut that out of our sermons, 
and simply preach that we have all fallen short and let's not judge anyone, then there's no fallout if I sin or if Power sins or Justin sins. But a gospel with no sin is no gospel at all. A gospel with no call to holiness is a neutered gospel. The gospel has to redeem from something. It's why it's the good news. I was bound for hell, lost in my sin, but the good news of Christ changed me. That's the gospel. I also want to reiterate, if there is ever a situation brought to our attention dealing with a child being abused, we will immediately report that to the authorities and have. We run background checks on all children's workers and youth workers. Children must be treated with utmost protection and let this report be a warning to Union Hill and everybody who serves in our children's department and student department. Let this report be a warning to be very watchful when you come onto this campus. I want to reiterate that no one on this staff believes a woman should go home to an abuser. In these situations, we have encouraged biblical separation and biblical counseling, which Union Hill has paid for. We have helped women find safe places to stay when they have feared going home, and we will continue to do that. We have tried our best to follow up in all of these situations. Let me move on. We refer for marriage counseling and one-on-one extended counseling. We do meet for prayer and general life spiritual questions, but I found out real early in my ministry that I'm not a trained professional counselor, and I don't want to pretend that I am. There are men and women who believe in the gospel who are trained to counsel families. We welcome you to meet with us, but we will not meet alone with any woman. We will pull another staff member in the room with us, and on many scenarios, we will pull a third party in the room, whether you are a man or a woman, for words can be twisted. We hear what we want to hear at times, every one of us, including me, and so we want to make sure there's accountability. The staff, next, the staff tries our best to be in group texts with women or with any woman. I can't say this happens every time. Often we have church folks text us simple questions in one-on-one text messages. I can't tell you that I've never done that with any of you either. But we prefer, and I'm saying this from the pulpit today, we prefer a group text from any woman in this church. We want the husbands to trust that we aren't after anyone's wives. I want Aaron to trust me that I'm not after anyone's wife. Me and Aaron have all right to each other's phones at home to check any messages or phone records or Facebook messages or whatever. We have no password in our lives that is not known. My email is open to her. Her email is open to me. If you are a woman here, we ask you to help us keep this rule that is a personal rule within our own hearts and in our own lives as a staff. I'm asking students 
to cover their student pastor in that as well. In 16 years of ministry, I've only had one person who has had a problem with this, and it told me real fast not to trust that person. Text message is one of the worst forms of communication. Can I say that again? Text message is one of the worst forms of communication. I'm trying not to preach here, but let me just throw this out here. If you're married in the house and you choose to have your heated discussions through text message, it's making the problem worse at times. Because you can't hear someone's heart and words can be easily manipulated and misinterpreted. Finally, I'd ask you to pray for us. It's been said that if you don't think you can fall into sexual temptation, then you are stronger than Samson, godlier than David, and wiser than Solomon. Never say, that couldn't happen to me or my family or my church. Because it can the Bible is filled with messy, sinful situations. And God does it on purpose. God filled his word up with the ugliness of sin to show that there is only one hero. One hero in the redemption story. And it's him. For the heart of man is sinful. The heart of man is an idol factory. We create our own idols. And only God can rescue. I've also read enough of the scripture and believe it with all my heart to know that God can take any situation and over the course of time, any ugly, messy, sinful situation, and over the course of time, redeem that for his name. And I give him praise for that. The Lord is in the process of pruning us. That's the text this morning. What you going to do when God cuts you? What am I going to do when God cuts me? That's the text. It's an illustration that Jesus uses here to show the relationship he has with the Father but then that the Father has with us, the disciples. He is the true vine, is what he says. Wonderful Old Testament implications there about the vine. We don't have time to get into all those. But Jesus is using that vine analogy on purpose. And he's drawing divine thought processes about his identity from the fact that he's the vine. It's the seventh I am statement. When Jesus draws on the name of Yahweh, I am, in the book of Exodus, Jesus drawing on that name to himself. It's this wonderful relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have together. The seventh I am statement, Jesus says he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, he says, I am the true vine. Every one of these has to do with life, having life, having abundant life, having joy in Jesus. Every one of these, for the vine gives life to its branches. 
the branches find their power, their nutrients, their life, their purpose from being attached to the vine. For Jesus is the vine and the disciples are the branches. But in verses 1 and 2, we find out that the Father is the gardener. He's the one that walks around in the vineyard, making sure that the vineyard is healthy. The gardener is doing two things, according to verse 2. Did you see that in the text? He's doing two things. Number one, he's pruning fruitless branches. Branches that don't have any fruit. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but the Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. All of these things that the Holy Spirit bears witness to in our life. When we ask the Holy Spirit to come inside of us, He immediately begins growing fruit into our lives. The Bible also says that repentance is also a fruit. Luke chapter 3 verse 8, Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 as well, that repentance is a fruit. And so we are walking around with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and repentance and faithfulness and gentleness and all of these things. We're walking around the fact that we want to be in church with community with one another, the fact that we want to hear God's word preached, the fact that we want to sing the songs of Zion, the fact that we want to see Jesus face to face one day, the fact that we want to tell someone about Jesus, all of that is fruit of the Holy Spirit. Please hear me today. If you are here and you don't have the desires within your heart to love Jesus with all of your heart, if there's no desire to share about Jesus with anybody, if there's no desire to live with integrity in your own heart and in own life, when no one around you is watching and it's just you and the Lord and you have no desire in your life to do that, if you have no desire to pray, if you have no desire to hear God's Word, to read God's Word, to understand God's Word, if there's no desire for any of this, I'm not the judge, but I think we can be fruit inspectors this morning. And we certainly can bear witness to verse 2 in the text when the gardener comes through and those branches that don't bear any fruit. He cuts. He cuts. According to verse 6, we didn't read verse 6, but according to verse 6, the pruning, the cutting, the gardener really does some ugly things here, according to verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire. Can you hear the judgment in that? That God would be fruit inspectors? That he would cut away fruitless branches? This is, a, this, is a, this is a very difficult text, by the way. Verse 2, the Bible says that those kind of branches are in Jesus. Did you see that? And so this text really has brought a lot of controversy over the years of what does this mean? Are these branches that were in Jesus, were these, were these branches that were receiving life, they never bore fruit? Jesus comes and gives them a period of time, or the gardener comes, the father comes, gives them a period of time, and then cuts those branches off. Were those Were those believers, disciples, were they saved? And then the Father comes in because those saved people go through their whole lives or go through it a period of time. I don't know how long, the text doesn't say, but eventually the the gardener comes in and cuts away fruitless branches. Those were believers. And so is this a text about 
losing salvation? Some would say yes. Some Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-filled preachers would say yes. But I don't think this is what the text is saying. And I think to get a clear understanding of that, you've got to read the whole Gospel of John. I think what the text is saying is that there are people who are attached to Jesus with a type of belief. But it's not a belief unto salvation. There's never any fruit bearing in their life. They spring forth fast. And when the pressures of the world and the worries of the world and the persecution of the world comes in, another text to deal with, those particular branches or those particular uh, plants that grow fast, they have no root, they wither away and die. This particular text, I believe, is saying that there is a belief in Jesus, but a belief that's not unto salvation. You say, how can you say that? I, I think we see that through the book of John. Just For time's sake, and I can't turn to all of these examples, but for time's sake, let's turn to one. Go back to the left in your Bible to John chapter number 3. I showed the Wednesday night folks this particular text. Go back to John chapter number 3. There are people who surround Jesus, and they believe in Jesus, but it's not a belief unto salvation. This is one example. I have five on the page right now that I don't have time to get to. Let me talk about one this morning. John chapter number 3. This is the story of Nicodemus. Do y'all remember Nicodemus? A priest on Nicodemus on Easter morning, by the way. Actually preached this thought on Easter morning. Look at what the text says when Nicodemus, verse 2, comes to Jesus at night. And Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus believes that Jesus is from God. Notice what he says. He says, for no one could perform the miracles, the miraculous signs that that you are doing. By the way, the word sign there is very intentional. It could have said, no one believes in the miracle, for no one could perform the miracles that you are doing. But it used the word signs there. That That has a lot of messianic claims there. And so Nicodemus is believing in the, in the miracles that Jesus is doing. And once again, he reiterates that I believe you're from God. And on top of that, Nicodemus has a morality that's better than anybody in here. For he is in high membership of the Jewish ruling council. And Jesus looks at a man who has a belief in him, who believes in the miracles, who believes that he's from God, and Jesus looks at that man and doesn't say that you're okay. What does he tell him? You must be born again. I can think of no better illustration to describe the church in the South than people who are affiliated with Jesus who have a belief in Jesus but have not been changed by Jesus. They have no desire to serve Him when no one's looking. They absolutely have an affiliation with Jesus, a belief in Jesus, but not a belief unto salvation. It is a dead, cold religion that is fooling everybody. 
We could talk about Judas. He's our greatest example in the book of John. For he hung out with Jesus for three years. He fooled everybody, didn't he? The Bible says that he was filled with Satan. What's your point, Mike? My point is, I think that there is a type of belief in Jesus that appears good for an hour on Sunday, but it's nowhere to be found from Monday morning to Saturday night. A one-hour faith that produces no fruit. None. And what's sad is, is that many in here know exactly what I'm talking about and that I'm talking to people in here right now, and you know it, but you still will not repent because you know that following Jesus will cost you everything. It'll cost the way you talk. It'll cost the way you think. It'll cost what you do for fun. It will cost you everything. Can I give you one of the greatest lies ever told from an American pulpit? Are you ready? Here it is. The greatest lie, I think, one of the greatest lies ever told from an American pulpit is this. Salvation is unconditional. Because it ain't. Jesus says that if you want to follow him, that a man must deny himself. He must take up his cross, follow him. There is conditions to Christianity. And you know what the condition is? You must be crucified with Jesus. The Father, he prunes the branches, cuts them away that don't bear any fruit. Verse 6, he gathers them up because they're dead and throws them into the fire. There will be eternal judgment. There will be eternal judgment. But verse 2 also says this, and I'm done. The Lord prunes fruitful branches to bear more fruit. The gardener, he walks around. He's got his divine shears, and he's cutting away branches that are bearing fruit. He's not cutting them all the way back, but he's pruning them. He's taking off little, a little branch off of the main branch here. He's little shoots that come off, little leaves, things that may even appear dead. He's trimming those things back for the purpose, excuse me, to bear more fruit. The, the branch, uh, uh, he, 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 he loves that branch. He wants it to produce fruit. And so in the process of watching that plant grow, that branch grow, he, he wants to trim that back so that it remains healthy. So many texts we could go to. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11 discusses the discipline of the Lord in our lives. He disciplines out of love, by the way. Uh, this, is, this is how he... Uh, uh, this is how he characterizes his children. This is what the Bible says. If you want to know whether you are a child of God, are you disciplined? Jesus, the Lord, disciplines out of love. I can tell you as a parent, there have been times I've disciplined out of love. Then there are times I've disciplined out of anger. The Bible says that the Father disciplines out of love, according to Hebrews chapter 12. There have been times where I have been, I have been sinful in my discipline of God. Not necessarily in what I've done, but certainly my attitude. God has never been sinful when He disciplines. His discipline is always right. It's always good in the long run. Even if we do not like it in the moment. You ever been disciplined by the Lord in the moment and you don't like it? Discipline hurts. 
It's the process of the Lord in our lives to make us look more like Jesus, to let us know that we are legitimate children, kids that have fathers that don't love them. Those kids, they don't have any relationship with their father. They wait for the father to bring something fun and cool at Christmas. Maybe. Some of you grew up without dads and you didn't even get that. They wait for their father to give them some good things. But they don't ever have their father to teach them anything. To look at them and say, let's get off the couch. Let's get into the yard. Let's do this. And they look back and they say, no, I don't want to do that. And you say, you're six. Welcome to discipline training at 7070 Taylor's Ferry Road. Let's get out into the yard. Or a father that disciplines by looking at their children and saying, no, that is not right. We will not do that. We will turn directions. We will change the course, the pattern of what we're doing. And we are not going to... Some of us have never had a father to to, to do that. What the Bible is saying in Hebrews chapter 12 is that if we want to know if we're legitimate children or not, that we belong to God, do we have the Lord disciplining us in our lives? Our Father is perfect. He gives good gifts. But the Father is perfect. He also redirects our steps. And when He gives us what we want, praise be to God. But when He gives us what we can't handle, praise be to God because then we run to Him. What we don't want from God, though we think we do, is that we do not want the Lord to leave us alone. Only give me good things and then leave me alone. And when I do bad things, give me more good things in life. Don't ever direct my steps. That's not what we want. Being left alone is not what we want at all. We want the Lord to have His hand in our lives at all times. The sign of the branch in Christ bearing fruit is that the branch comes to the place where He welcomes the pruning process. Have you ever welcomed the pruning process where the branch prays, Lord, cut me? Where the branch sings, Lord, have thine own way, Lord. The pruning process brings the fruit of repentance. In fact, repentance... Is necessary. And all of this, the pruning process is teaching us to be repentant. The pruning process can be very public for some. You need to be very careful in condemning anyone that's going through the public pruning process. Maybe the only reason your sin has never reached the evening news is because the Lord has prevented it from being so. But in all of this, there is one goal. For the believer, it's to bear more fruit. of months ago, I don't know, 
yeah, a couple of months ago, no, six weeks ago, we planted a garden across the street. I like to plant a garden. I did three rows of corn this year and because uh, two was not enough, and I've run out of corn in the deep freeze. And uh, I've also uh, doubled up on how much okra that we planted because um, I learned to fry okra. And uh, I don't know if there's a meal that doesn't go better with fried okra. Um, spaghetti and fried okra. Uh, bacon and eggs and fried okra. Uh, I went across the street literally an hour and a half ago. It's like 10 o'clock. And I walked through those tomato plants that I planted, and I found one of these. Y'all know what this is? It's not just a tomato branch. It's a sucker. Where a branch comes out and the main stem goes up right there where they meet in the Y, tomato plants tend to grow these things called suckers. And they come right out of the Y. My understanding is, if anybody in here is a tomato expert, then you can, you can help me out after this. But my understanding is, this sucker will never grow fruit. What you can do, and this doesn't really fit the illustration, but you can pitch these things off and plant the suckers, and then they'll actually become a tomato plant, and then they will grow fruit. But while they are on the tomato plant, all they are doing is sucking out nutrients out of the tomato plant so that those nutrients, the life, never gets to your tomatoes. And so what you do is, is you go through these tomato plants and you see these things and you prune them, cut them off, so that the tomatoes receive nutrients listen to me so that the tomato plant bears more fruit the fact of the matter is the pruning process shows that we have suckers things in our life as believers that are idols and they drain us from the life-given nutrients that the vine wants to give us. And until we ask the Lord to prune these things, we will never produce the fruit that a believer wants to produce. Hold another sermon for another time, but I don't even see in the text that the branch has to give permission to the gardener to be pruned. <laughs> the gardener does what he wants to. And sometimes the pruning process is very private. Sometimes the pruning process is very public. Here's my question for you and myself. How is God pruning you right now? Well, I don't need pruning. Really?
you're lost in here and you don't know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart and you call on Him for salvation. If you're saved in here and you're walking through the pruning process, listen to me. I don't care how ugly the pruning process is. If you're saved and the gardener's pruning you, the gardener has not given up on you and you're being pruned to bear more fruit. How can you say that? Because that's the gospel. The gospel is for anyone who runs to Christ. Anyone. And a miracle happens. You are grafted into the vine. A whole other illustration. Romans chapter 11. You are grafted. You are put into the vine. And immediately receive the life that the vine gives. If you're lost and you don't know Christ, come to salvation. If you're saved... How is the Lord pruning you? When you sing, have thine own way, Lord, do you really mean that? And if so, then that's an invitation to the gardener to cut. Let's bow together. Father God. I pray, Father, that you are walking around the vineyard right now and you are pruning. God, would you prune my life? Would you cut away anything? Would you cut away anything? That is taking my attention away from walking with you. God, I pray for the person here that is lost. Would you save? Would you save today? We love you. We thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. As these guys get ready to lead us. If you need to do business with the Lord, the altar's open. For anyone who wants to come for prayer, the altar is open. We'd love to pray with anybody in the house today. Do business with the Lord.